Welcome to today's podcast, Perspectives on Regulations in Financial Crime Enforcement. Much has been made of the focus of the Trump administration on rolling back regulations, but less attention has been paid to its approach to enforcement. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence sits down with David Cohen, partner at Wilmer Hale in their regulatory and government affairs and litigation controversy practices, to discuss the likely regulatory and enforcement focus for the U.S. Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, also known as OFAC, which focuses on financial and economic sanctions, and the Financial Crime Enforcement Network, also known as FinCEN, which focuses on anti-money laundering regulation and enforcement. Before joining Wilmer Harrow, Mr. Cohen served for eight years as senior presidentially appointed positions, including Deputy Director of the CIA. He was the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence at the U.S. Department of the Treasury and directly supervised OFAC and FinCEN. Mr. Cohen was instrumental in developing and implementing sanctions against Iran, Russia, North Korea, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other terrorist organizations, for which he was described as President Obama's favorite combatant commander and as the administration's financial batman. With that, I'll turn it over to David. Thank you. David, it's, uh, first of all, it really is a very, very special honor to uh, be able to have a conversation with you. And I will mention to the audience, there are very few people who truly embody uh, the term public service. So uh, I'll start with thanking you for your many years of public service and uh, look forward to a continued dialogue and your perspective now that you're in private practice and we can actually speak to you. So well, thank you for joining us. Thank okay. you. That's, uh, that's very kind of you. Well, um, let me start with the uh, following uh, observation, um, which uh, increasingly in an interconnected world, um, there are actually very, very few truly commercial and financial transactions. Uh, there are many, many geopolitical transactions that have financial consequences. And as companies do business around the world and increasingly have to be mindful of geopolitical risks and the important policies and objectives of uh, the governments that oversee their businesses. Maybe you can share with us, uh, in light of your long years of distinguished service, sort of the continuum of um, what has occurred over the last, we'll call it, a couple of decades in terms of uh, how companies have to think about their presence in a global environment, the types of issues that collectively we're facing, the reasons behind the regulations, and the very, very significant responsibilities that companies have in a uh, global environment. Well, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think you've put your finger right on why the Treasury Department in particular has taken on a more important role in the national security uh, efforts of the U.S. government and, frankly, other um, similar finance ministries around the world as well. And that's because, as you say, the right way to think about uh, international relationships and international business relationships is not as just uh, sort of one-off, isolated commercial transactions, but it all tends to occur in a much more uh, intricate and complex environment in which the commercial transactions that are uh, are proceeding have implications or may have implications for the 
various countries uh, of jurisdiction and what they're trying to accomplish to promote the safety and security of their citizens. Uh, and what I think, you know, several decades ago, there were uh, some relatively sort of clunky regulations that uh, pertain to how businesses could trade and, in, in, you know, in particular, you think about things like these sort of broad trade embargoes on Cuba that were, were put in place that, that were expressions of, uh, of sort of foreign policy desires, but were not all that effective, frankly, in, in trying to either protect one's citizens or to encourage uh, policy change on the, the target. And what, what folks at the Treasury Department in particular figured out um, was that you could use the, the financial system in particular as a tool uh, both to, um, to sort of protect against the illicit financial flows. So thinking about anti-money laundering regulation in particular to try to squeeze out uh, the dirty proceeds from the financial system and protect the financial system as a result, but also to use the interconnectedness of the financial system as a way to promote foreign policy and national security objectives, and in particular to use financial sanctions in that way. And so the, over the last couple decades in particular, you've seen the growth of sanctions programs that are not these broad-based trade embargoes of the Cuba type, but much more focused financial sanctions programs that are aimed at illicit conduct. So, for instance, the financing of terrorism, the financing of weapons of mass destruction proliferation, the financing of narcotics trafficking, uh, and to use the the financial system and the actors in the financial system as sort of a proxy to get at that illicit conduct. Um, and the, the tools that we used at the Treasury Department uh, to, to get at that are principally these, these financial sanctions tools that, uh, that I think were really honed uh, over the last you know, decade or so. So uh, one of the things I'll divert a little bit from uh, script, but um, a debate that I witnessed uh, firsthand during um, 20 years of, uh, plus years at uh, Goldman Sachs amongst clients and sponsor groups and et cetera, was, um, and you see it play out in commentary in some of the leading business media is, is the constant debate of do sanctions actually work? After all, they don't seem to cause regime change, and et cetera. And one thing I will note, because it came up in uh, today's uh, headlines and also in a recent uh, uh, conversation we had with uh, some of our experts, is uh, if, it, if it didn't have an impact, please explain why it is every regime that is subject to sanctions looks to have them lifted. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting debate because I, I think the debate has not caught up with the reality uh, in some respects. Um, because I think the, the debate is a little bit stuck in the Cuba model and hasn't taken account of you know, either the counter-terrorist financing work, the, the work against uh, the Iranian uh, 
nuclear program uh, or the the Russia sanctions. So I, just you know, in brief, I, mean, I could go on at great length on this, as you might imagine, because it's something that I, <laughs> I care deeply about. But if you look at uh, the Russians, for instance, you look at President Putin and you look at all of the focus on whether the sanctions would be lifted by the incoming Trump administration. Um, it is it is pretty clear that one thing that the Russians were, and Putin in particular, were quite keen to, uh, to try to accomplish was to get the sanctions lifted. Um, and, you know, so without getting too far into what uh, you know, conversations may have occurred between the folks on the Trump campaign or the incoming administration uh, and uh, you know, and Russian uh, officials. There's you don't need to get into any of the the classified information or any of the allegations that are out there to know that that Trump uh, Putin rather was was very interested in getting these sanctions lifted and. And that's got to be because he didn't like them. He didn't like them, I think, both because they were a blemish on his you know, on his record, in a sense. Uh, it you know put him in the category of you know the Iranians and the North Koreans and others. And it was having an effect on his economy. Um, we used to debate within the administration whether the decline in the in the Russian economy was due to the the drop in oil prices or the sanctions and it was you know hard to disaggregate the two you know leading causes but i think putin answered that question for us by working as actively as he did to try to uh to try to get the sanctions removed um and then i'll just say on the other i think very crisp example of how sanctions are effective is the Iran experience. Um, and we worked over a number of years to increasingly intensify the sanctions on Iran uh, with a very clear goal, which was to bring the Iranians to the table uh, to negotiate on their nuclear program. That worked. You can, you can debate whether the, the JCPOA that came out of that negotiation was as good as it could have been was a you know the worst deal ever or somewhere in between, uh, but there's no question that we would not have gotten to any sort of negotiation with the Iranians had it not been for the sanctions pressure that we uh, that we applied to uh, to Iran. So great perspective, David. Uh, now that you, uh, I know you started uh, early on uh, as a uh, practitioner of law and. The, distinguished years in the government and back here. Um, maybe you can share with our audience a little bit of, um, we'll call it, the government expectations around mm -hmm. corporate governance and compliance. And not just simply, uh, people often just look at this in terms of enforcement actions and fines, but sort of why those expectations are level set the way they are, mm -hmm. and ideally what the government is trying to achieve. Yeah, so we tried to make the point uh, when I was at the Treasury Department, and I think the folks who are there now, um, I think, continue to make this point, that the, the government is not looking for perfection, uh, particularly in the, in the world of anti-money laundering, where you're you know, trying to understand 
who your clients are, what the transactions might be, uh, and try to identify uh, potentially suspicious activity. The idea is to have in place a proper and, and properly robust program so that you're in a position to identify illicit transactions, transactions that might be the proceeds of corruption or the proceeds of money laundering, the proceeds of drug trafficking, whatever it may be. Um, and so that you are, you are able to, to discharge your obligations in a, in a reasonable fashion, in an appropriate fashion. Um, it, we were not playing a game of gotcha. I know there's, a, there's you know, some perception in, uh, in some quarters that it's a, sort of a, a, that that's exactly what we were trying to do with what, that we did. Um, but, but the enforcement actions that were brought when I was there, and I think the, the crew that's there now is pursuing this in the same fashion, were focused on, on significant departures from what the reasonable expectations were. Um, and to that end, one of the things that we tried to do was to make clear the broader context in which the regulatory requirements were embedded so that the regu regulated community could understand why it is that they were being asked to you know, know their customer, why it is that, you know, for instance, the new beneficial ownership uh, regulation that's coming into effect uh, in about six months, why that's an important uh, component to a good anti-money laundering program, you know, why it is that you need to screen your transactions uh, against the OFAC list so that you're not uh, facilitating the movement of money for you know, someone who's a financier for a terrorist organization. Um, putting all of that into the broader policy context uh, of what the U.S. government in particular is trying to accomplish, we, we felt was always an important aspect of the, of the regulatory and enforcement effort. And how do you sort of gauge the relative success of those efforts over, you know, the many years? Yeah. And what are you looking towards the future to, to, yeah. to achieve? Yeah. So I think it's actually um, a lot of progress has been made. And, you know, and I, I'd point to a recent uh, speech given by my successor at at Treasury, uh, a woman named Sadal Mandelker, who's the new Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, uh, where I think she she noted, you know, as have the the director of OFAC, John Smith, and the acting director of, of FinCEN, Jamal Al Hindi. I think they've all noted that the 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 regulated community, banks, you know, major U.S. corporations. Uh, you know, trading companies have have really upped their game uh, over the last uh, you know couple of decades, and you know, some of the the more egregious uh, problems that had been identified and had been the the focus of enforcement actions, they are not as prevalent today in the in the sophisticated business sector uh, as they were. Uh, you know, a, a decade ago. But I think there's, there has been substantial progress. And you look at major financial institutions now, they all have sizable compliance departments that are focused on 
both sanctions compliance and anti-money laundering compliance. There's some question, I think, among uh, some business leaders as to whether they have had to do too much uh, and whether it's they've had to go overboard uh, in order to avoid an enforcement action. Uh, but you know, th this is a the the process of I think getting it right sized uh, in terms of the the efforts that need to be undertaken to comply with the, the regulations is is one that's going to take time to continue to to shake out. Uh, and you know for sure there's more work that can be done from the government to focus the efforts and to and to give better guidance to the regulated community as to what it is in particular that they ought to be focusing on. But I think by and large the 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 effort to squeeze dirty money out of the system and to get the the financial community and and, and other international businesses to understand and to comply with the sanctions uh, regimes has worked pretty well. Uh, let me maybe follow up on that for a moment because what we've also seen is the retrenchment of many of the leading, the world's leading financial institutions out of certain markets where they have said the risk reward just isn't there. Yeah. Um, and the wide swaths of um, Central and South uh, America, Africa, Middle East, other places. And what we have also seen, uh, this is more a policy point, is that, um, you know, uh, this underbanked, uh, these underbanked uh, geographies uh, don't, you know, don't sort of stay static, but other other means of moving money, other means of banking uh, come in, and often other foreign institutions that are not subjected to U.S. regulatory um, oversight come in and fill the voids. How do you think about that, and, and maybe addressing that? And, and obviously, you know, there are important policy reasons why um, the U.S. cares about many of those regions. Yeah, absolutely, and that's uh, I think that's a real concern um, in in the effort to try and, and make these uh, regulatory regimes work properly is that, you know, you don't want to, you don't want the medicine to be so powerful that it, uh, you know, it, it kills the organism, right? So the, and one of the, one of the concerns that we had at Treasury when I was there, and I, I'm sure they still share, is this de-risking uh, concern where uh, there, there are, global financial institutions that make the decision, and it's sort of a business-based decision, that it's just not worth the cost and the risk to provide financial services to certain parts of the world because there's, uh, you know, there's, there's greater risk of illicit finance than uh, in more developed areas and less of a, a regulatory infrastructure that they can rely on from the, the host governments to help uh, ensure that you know, dirty money isn't flowing into the system, getting and that and that has real impact uh, for a variety of of policy objectives. It has impact on just the on the financial integrity portfolio because the the less that you have people in the system, the less able you are to know what's going on and to and to 
uh, have the, the basic uh, requirements of financial integrity you know, spread more broadly around the world. And it's also important for, uh, for economic development uh, and for you know, sort of basic humanitarian reasons that you want people to have access to the banking sector so that they can you know, send money to their, to their families, so that they can borrow money to develop businesses, and frankly do everything that, that banks uh, here do for, for their customers. So getting the, the regulatory regime tuned properly uh, so that you don't have massive de-risking is a is an important objective, and you know, candidly, not one that I think we have we've gotten right yet. Because I think you you do have some of these global financial institutions that have backed out of uh, providing services in some jurisdictions. the 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 difficulty that we always encountered was how to address that. You know, do you give the special dispensation for a particular area? And if you do that, what happens? And the, you know, the fear was, you know, if you say, you know, Somalia was always a, a significant concern. You say, look, we'll, we, will, we will have a lighter regulatory touch on financial institutions that are providing services to Somalia, or at least on their aspect of their business in Somalia. That that is sort of an invitation to mischief in a sense. Um, and so the, the way to address this problem uh, was never, never seemed to me anyway, and I think to the folks that I was working with at the time, to do sort of one-off uh, regulatory relief, but to try to um, address it at the more systemic level of the of the way that the regulations were designed, the way the regulations overall were being enforced, and to provide some comfort to financial institutions, as I was saying earlier, that we're not playing a game of gotcha, uh, that, that we're not looking for absolute perfection. We're looking for reasonable risk-based programs um, that can be different uh, depending on the, the you know, particular services and particular jurisdictions where you're operating. David, um, I know you've heard the term businesses uh, or business in general love certainty and they love predictability. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the toughest issues inside organizations is, you know, do I have my compliance program, my training right-sized? Am I doing enough on the business deals? Um, that we're engaged in and the investments that we're making and the operation of subsidiaries, et cetera. And um, the term risk-based approach, which I, I thought was a, just a wonderful use of language, um, um, a number of years ago, it also shifted the responsibility back to the institutions to figure out what was right for them rather than you know have a particular target to hit. But um, what I have sensed, and you saw it with some recent announcements about around self-disclosure and uh, sort of a bit of a safe harbor for companies that self-disclose in, uh, in certain arenas and certain violations. Can you give us a, a sense of what else really is needed here um, for to sort of bridge um, what I'll refer to a closer relationship between uh, the regulators and regulated entities, and in general, um, 
you know, companies doing business because the overarching message here around all these regulations, while it's a bit of, it's alphabet soup with FCPA and KYC and, you know, and then you have OFAC and CFIS, is, is that the government, what the government is really saying here with all these regulations is that this is an increasingly um, risky world, dangerous world, that the government cannot accomplish all its uh, objectives uh, to maintain security by itself. It really needs partnership with um, corporations. And to help forge that partnership, of course, we have regulations and requirements. But, you know, certainly um, more can be done to bridge a closer working relationship and um, we'll call it greater trust between the government and, and companies. And I'll just digress for one second. Uh, President Obama had a, uh, we'll get into cybersecurity in a minute, but, you know, his um, commission that um, studied the issue and made various recommendations, which I think uh, were delivered in December 2016. Uh, among their findings was the uh, great amount of distrust that the tech community had uh, for the government and for the government's objectives and maybe some thoughts about how, um, since these are issues that confront us all and affect us all and uh, uh, how some of the, uh, we'll call it, the divides can be bridged uh, and maybe we can begin to collaborate a little bit more. Yeah, I guess my answer to that is that there is there's no magic um, to to addressing the to fear of um, fear of the unknown in a sense, and that and that, I think that's fundamentally what the regulated community is most worried about. It isn't that there are regulations. You know, if there were regulations that were clearly understood and they, you know sitting in your business, you knew that, you know, you need to do X and not Y. You may not like it, but if you know what the rule is and you know how it's going to be enforced, uh, you know, you, you, that is far preferable to being in a world where there's a bunch of uncertainty, a bunch of gray area, and a bunch of concern that, that what you thought was inbounds and out-of-bounds, uh, you know, tomorrow may change. And, and what you thought was permissible all of a sudden becomes the subject of a massive enforcement action. And the, the way to address that uh, is communication. Communication, communication. You've got to sort of constantly, uh, if, you're in the, if you're in government, I think you have an obligation to constantly explain what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. And if you're in the regulated community, you, I think, have a, an obligation also to, to engage, to ask questions, to to attend you know, events where you have regulators expressing their uh, their views on on where they're heading, you know, and to to take advantage of of both people and institutions that can give you insight into where the government is going, what they're thinking about. Um, so I, I, I'll digress a little bit myself and cite just one uh, recent development that I think is helpful in this regard. Uh, and that's a, a new program that was announced recently called FinCEN Exchange, um, which is the building on efforts that have been underway for a number of years, but, but formalizing uh, this exchange of information between FinCEN, so the, the anti-money laundering regulatory agency in Treasury, and the financial community, where 
they are now intending on, I think, every six or eight weeks to get together for governments to share with the financial community the typologies and the methodologies and the concerns on illicit finance that they're seeing, and for the for the financial institutions to take that on board, to work it up, and to provide back to uh, the back to FinCEN information that they have on these particular money laundering or illicit finance threats. And through this iterative process you ought to have both better ability for the government to target its efforts against the bad actors, as well as better opportunity for the financial sector to protect themselves against their, the misuse of their services by bad actors and to help the government identify where they should be directing their enforcement activity, you know, presumably not at the bank, but at the, at the bad customer. The bad, uh, the bad transactions. So th that that is a um, a program that, as I said, that had building on work that has been underway for you know really a number of years, where we've tried to encourage information sharing back and forth between the financial sector and the regulators. It's it's a tricky area because the information that is being shared. Uh, tends to be information about suspicions, not information about known illegal conduct. And when you're trading and sharing information about suspicions, there's you know, significant privacy concerns that come into, uh, that come into play. Um, but there's an enormous appetite, I would say, both on both sides of that, that conversation, both on the government side and on the financial community, to to have a more robust dialogue. And you know, so I you know, commend the folks at Treasury for, um, for formalizing this. But I think that's one example of a way to, uh, to deal with the, the concern that the, that the regulated community has about uh, what, the, what the government is asking of them. I, I won't expect you to comment fully on this, but um, we like to preach. Uh, it's important to read. Uh, read widely, whether it's a physical copy or online. And uh, the one thing that uh, is important, not so much to read, you know, to learn of a particular news event as much as it is to figure out why is a certain issue being highlighted in a particular publication um, and uh, at this particular time. And uh, what I do think the government does a reasonably good job of is um, selective disclosure through broad uh, media and business channels mm -hmm. about what their concerns are and their focus. Um, of course, it's up to each individual institution to see it, read it, and to integrate it. But uh, what I have found increasingly uh, over the years is that um, there are signs that are, are, are given by in important government sources about what they're concerned about and why. I think that's right. And, and you can, <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's funny. I think it's both right and a little bit wrong. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I think that it, it's clearly right that if, you know, you, you, you should pay attention to, uh, to speeches, to interviews, to advisories that are put out by, 
uh, by government. Um, the, the extent that it's a little bit wrong, and I think there's, there's always a little bit of danger, is, um, you know, I, I, I saw this happen frequently when I was in government where we would be doing something at Treasury and maybe the State Department would issue something the same day on a similar topic. And the perception from the, you know, from the outside was that it was all well-coordinated and that there was you know, deep meaning uh, behind you know, the, the two statements, or there was an action taken you know, by Treasury, and then there was a speech given by someone you know, halfway around the world, and the perception that the government has, you know, is, is like a perfectly knows what the right hand and the left hand are doing at all times. Uh, can sometimes um, sometimes not be exactly right, and so I I do think it's it's important to pay attention to formal pronouncements and to guidance that's that is issued and to enforcement actions that come out. Um, uh, but you need to take it all into into a, into the context of what you know. Shift shift through it and apply yeah. uh, weight. Um, accordingly. So, um, and apropos your point, look, uh, uh, Jay Clayton and the SEC have been um, very forward, I think, in terms of uh, underscoring their concerns um, as much for investor protections mm -hmm. uh, around um, various cryptocurrency and uh, initial coin offerings. Uh, most yeah. re recently, uh, two evenings ago, when they issued their most recent uh, pronouncement. And um, I also remember many years ago, Arthur Levitt um, making speeches about the, his concerns about the deteriorating qualities of uh, outside um, audit efforts around public companies. And uh, all that obviously foretold uh, some greater scandals with some very, very big name companies. Um, so uh, I guess the overarching thing is message here, David, is uh, when, pe when people in positions of uh, authority and um, and who are in positions where they know where they speak and they end up speaking, you should pay attention. No question. No question. And, uh, um, you know, particularly if they say it repeatedly, um, pay attention. And one of, one of okay. the, one of the messages that, uh, that I learned in government was you, know, you say it once, nobody pays attention. You say it 10 times, you're actually not boring people. You're actually, you're actually communicating something really important. And so, um, you know, pay attention to uh, to repeated admonitions from the uh, yeah, from government officials. Okay, that's good advice for kids listening to parents as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, let me let me switch gears a little bit because it's a changing world and and you were within the intelligence community mm -hmm. as uh, increasingly uh, a very, very important and uh, as President Obama and uh, others have said, existential threat arose through our digital portals. And that's mm -hmm. the issue of cybersecurity and um, the actors, um, their objectives, their methods, their means, and uh, I'll, I'll say an increasing resiliency. Um, maybe you can give us a little bit of an overview about um, how you think about those range of, uh, of risks, how enterprises need to think about this, and, and a little bit about 
what you're seeing in the future. And then I'd actually like to ask a couple of follow-up questions. Sure. Look, I think the, the, the key thing for the private sector to, to be attentive to is the fact that in the, the cyber risk uh, is increasing in ways that, that I think other risks um, are not. And, and by that I mean there's a, a pretty rapid uh, move from what state actors are able to accomplish to what malicious cyber actors are able to accomplish. And so what you know, only the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians you know, could do three years ago uh, is, is now sort of in the hands of cyber criminals. And, and I don't think there's, a, there's any reason to think that that trend is going to change anytime soon. And so the, from the perspective of the, you know, the commercial community, protecting themselves, the, this is a, a constant need to, to test and to reinforce their cyber protections because the, the, the bad guys out there are getting you know, better and better at what they're doing. And I you know, saw that when I was in, uh, in government and seeing how you know, some of the the tools, the exploits, the viruses, the techniques that were being used by state actors were migrating out to the, to the non-state actor cyber criminals. Um, so the, that's, the, that's the caution that I would, uh, that I would give to, uh, to folks who are responsible for cybersecurity in their businesses. This is, yeah, this is a very dynamic environment in which the, the threat is, uh, I think, ever-increasing. And David, as you, as you think about this, um, and you see this as an increasingly um, serious uh, threat, what is it the government should actually be doing, and what should the private sector be doing, and more importantly, what should they be doing together, in your view, uh, that they're not already? I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but it is, again, it is the sharing of information. Um, and that is, that is underway, uh, you know, in the, the various uh, you know, sectors of the economy that have been identified as the, you know, as critical. Um, there are, you know, as folks know, uh, mechanisms in place to share information uh, with the federal government and, you know, to some extent among actors. I think that needs to get better. I think there's, uh, you know, there was efforts underway to have legislation to, to take out some of the risk of sharing information about cyber vulnerabilities. I think that's an important, uh, an important step that, uh, that Congress should take to encourage or take away any discouragement of sharing information. Um, so, so that's one. I think the the government uh, needs to 
you know, whether you're talking about the financial sector or the energy sector or sort of any of the, the, the critical sectors, needs to, I think, do a much better job of establishing lines of communication where classified information can be shared with appropriately cleared individuals uh, so that they can take steps to protect their businesses from imminent threats that the, the government may be picking up. You know, one of the, you know, one of the, <laughs> one of the areas where this, this country has invested quite substantially is in our ability to identify and detect malicious cyber activity. Um, and we do a pretty good job of it with, at the NSA uh, and some of the other agencies. It's very useful to have that to protect government systems and to protect against the, uh, and so the government can can respond, be even more effective if we could enlist the private sector on the defensive side as well. Um, and I think that requires some greater ability to share information from government to the private sector. Um, so again, I think much like dealing with illicit finance, dealing with the cyber threat is is a is a team sport that requires collaboration among and between the private sector and the government. Okay. Um, let me conclude with a final question, which is uh, what's keeping you up at night these days? <laughs> uh, <laughs> not the same things that used to keep me up at night. Um, you know, I used to I used to uh, be kept up at night with uh, with worry about the uh, about what I was supposed to do on you know whether it's you know the counterterrorism file or North Korea or Russia. Um, what, so part of what keeps me up at night is that I I I wish I still had <laughs> the ability to to affect some of these things. Um, and look, I mean, you know, in all candor, I think. What keeps me up at night right now is I see a um, growing threat of military uh, action in two areas. One is with North Korea and the other is with Iran. Um, I'm not convinced that the military action is the right course in either place. And, you know, more to the point, I think there's... Uh, there's substantial reason to think that the that engaging in some sort of military action against North Korea will spiral out of control in ways that are unpredictable and enormously damaging. And likewise, uh, the you know, there's I think a, a reason reasonable prospect that we could have a similar dynamic in Iran, which is not to say that neither. North Korea or Iran are significant security threats to the United States. They both are um, in different ways, but they're both very, uh, very uh, urgent and important security, national security problems. Um, but what keeps me up at night is the fear that um, we are underutilizing or, or underemphasizing diplomatic or non-kinetic solutions 
uh, and are heading towards a uh, you know towards a military action in both those uh, venues. Okay. Well, that the, on those cheery words, David. Yeah. Is that depressing uh, enough? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's uh, realistic. Um, so, I, first of all, I want to uh, thank you again for your service, your significant, significant service. And what I would uh, just mention to the listeners, that is, David is now available in private practice. Um, companies really can't get uh, better counsel in a wide variety of uh, areas. Um, and maybe we'll have a second podcast just to talk about CFIUS, um, as well, and some of the things that are going on. I, I'm mindful of the time here. Um, but it uh, is a great honor. And um, in an increasingly global and interconnected world where regulatory objectives, geopolitical objectives, the policies of state uh, intersect with um, financial and commercial transactions literally on a daily basis. Um, having sort of expert counsel to think through uh, what you need to know and uh, how to most importantly manage those risks uh, is increasingly important. And uh, Maybe no better counsel on a wide variety of issues than you, David. So <laughs> okay. welcome to the private sector. Okay. <laughs> Thanks.